As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hello and welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, well, quite frankly, we're talking about absolutely everything and I have no idea how we're going to fit it into an hour. We've got replays, we've got referees, we've got Euro 2028 and we've got two World Cups. Oh, and a bit of Champions League as well because there are a couple of big, big performances in the Champions League this week. Not least Newcastle United. There was an awful night for Manchester United and you can hear me, guys. I'm getting much quicker to talk about it just to try and cram it all in. Joining me, Tom Clark, for all of that, we've got Martin Samuel, Chief Correspondent for The Times and Sunday Times, football writer Tom Allnut, and a former professional, once described by Chris Wilder as a good, experienced pro with important versatility. It's Gregor Robertson. Gushing. Gushing. <laughs> not made up, by the way, not made up, just in case you were wondering. But we won't dwell on my excellent, jokey intro. We're going to get straight on to Newcastle United's big win, because if those guys weren't enough... We've also got Martin Hardy, Northern Sports Correspondent for the Times and Sunday Times. Joining us, he was at St. James's Park for Newcastle 4, Paris Saint-Germain 1. And Martin, surely you're about to retire. It can't get any better than this. <laughs> well, as you'll be able to hear, and we talk fast anyway, OPS, yes, I should be OK. Um, I have a chest infection, which means I'm possibly the only person in the who has not consumed a great deal of alcohol this week. Um, I, I, whether this is relevant, um, I'm getting some work done in my house and spoke to a my uh, window fitter this morning and he was extremely croaky when he picked up the phone and he said, Martin, I'm not feeling too well this morning. Can I give you a ring tomorrow? <laughs> and I think, I, think that, I think that reflects the fact that uh, the Newcastle Knight fans may have tried to drink the city dry last night. It was, uh, it was a, a memorable night. Um, it's 20 years since the Champions League and kind of all that emotion that's been um, backed up in that period came out in one game there is a lot of issues to get through but I will try and do it as quickly as possible hmm. what, what felt as memorable as anything was the atmosphere and now this season where I've been I've been to last against Liverpool I've been to Milan um, also been to let me think Legia Warsaw last season and then the PSG fans were the same last night it's all very somebody shouts with a drum and somebody has, somebody has a microphone and it's very noisy but it's very regimented whereas last night in James's Park it just felt very natural kind of one of the last the last of a real atmosphere where this was just 50,000 people giving it everything they could to back the team and it made this ferocious noise which I think in part did help the team a great deal to kind of overwhelm Paris Saint-Germain times. Martin, just to interrupt interrupt you on that because atmosphere was the thing I was going to talk about but it is something that he talked about so much with Newcastle and St James's Park. Was this any different or is this just another big game? No, it was was hugely different. You could feel that in the build-up to the match. As I said, the, the kind of the historical pointer on this is Newcastle 3, Barcelona 2 in 1997. I still think that is the greatest atmosphere I've heard in the stadium, possibly apart from Kevin Keegan's debut in 1982. Last night got as close as you're going to get to beating that. Um, the stadium was full 15 minutes before kickoff, which just immediately feels unusual. The, the, the noise before the players came out was great. The noise when the players came out went up a notch. Um, Two minutes forty seconds. Anthony Gordon doesn't win, gives away effectively a goal kick for Paris Saint-Germain by pressing, and there's this incredible roar as if Newcastle have won something. 
it's one of them. If you, if you go to English Stadium, you know where the noise generally comes from. And the St James's part is kind of in the corner of the Gallagher, and that's the relentless bit. When there are other parts of the stadium on their feet, screaming, waving their arms around, that's when it feels different. So you could look to the leases, and throughout the night, there was many, many fans in that part of the ground who were on their feet singing and shouting and waving their fists. Whenever a player made a tackle, whether it's Bruno Gamera's or Dan Byrne, they were waving their fists, which is a new part of the game, which take me perhaps commodity a while to get uh, used to. But as soon as they did, there was another roar. So I think everybody there knew this was a very special night whether they were also trying to bring their best because it's been so long or whether it was to help the team or whether it was to kind of banish the, the, the Ashley years and that, that, that period where the club didn't really want to do anything at all and certainly had no aspirations to do anything like last night. Maybe it was a combination of all of that, but it made it an incredibly raucous atmosphere. Um, and I think it was probably about 66 minutes, maybe when, when that, that was the first lull. And that might have been when it went 3-1. You thought maybe the players are running out of energy, maybe the crowd's running out of energy. But they both picked themselves up to kind of to kind of see it over the line. But no, it was one of them where you would chat to, maybe I am now a seasoned observer, um, but you would chat to some older fans or some older people in the press box, fans, journalists in the press box from outside the northeast. And it was kind of, this is loud. This is really, really loud. And it was a, a night when St. James's Park showed, it, showed why it's, revered at times as such a uh, cathedral on the hill as they call it and such a great place to play football a special night Martin Hardy thank you for joining us to tell us all about that atmosphere I'll let you go giving you chest infection and rest up for the weekend (laughs) Uh, and thanks for your cameo from your window fitter as well I'm sure he'll be delighted with his mention (laughs) about his professional capabilities Martin Hardy we'll speak to you soon thanks very much cheers Tom Right, chaps, well, there you have it. A special night, an extra special night for Newcastle United in terms of atmosphere, as Martin Hardy was explaining there. But on the pitch, what did we make of this performance, uh, Martin? Samuel, I'll come to you first. Was this a culmination of everything Eddie Howe's put together? Was this a? Did it feel like a one-off? Did it feel like a team that's growing towards even greater heights? It certainly didn't feel like a one-off. Um, it felt like um, the achievement of last season um, basically condensed into one night. What they did last season um, was an accelerator. It, it, there's no, there's no doubt about that. It accelerated everything that is happening um, on Tyneside at the moment. They didn't expect to get Champions League football in Eddie Howe's first full season, and the fact that they did get Champions League football in his first season uh, opened the door to. Uh, signings that they might not possibly have made if you think of Tonali and you think that, that that's a record for uh, an Italian footballer um, which is quite surprising in itself but um, but it enabled them to do that in a way that they possibly wouldn't have been able to uh, to do it before because you can argue about oh they've got uh, Saudi Arabia's money or whatever but you've got to get people to want to come to your football club but just having the money doesn't necessarily mean that they'll come you know Manchester City had the money to buy Kaka that time that they wanted to buy Kaka and couldn't because he didn't want to go to Manchester City so just having the money doesn't make a difference you've got to show something more than that that's what Newcastle did last season this result is an accelerator again because all around Europe there are people, there are players, there are agents now looking at that and thinking, I can sell this club to my client. Mm. I can, I, you know, or 
this would be a place that it would be I, I could go to to play. It, it's a, it's a huge result for Newcastle, and the fact of the matter is. It's not a one-off because if you looked at their starting eleven and PSG's starting eleven and their bench and PSG's bench, I'd I'd take Newcastle's starting eleven. I'd take Newcastle's bench. Yeah, well, it's interesting really? you talk about. We come on yeah. to that. I like you come back to that, Gregor. But just on that point about signings and things, and obviously a lot of Newcastle's set success comes with a bit of an asterisk. You know, talking about the takeover and the financial backing. But of course, we've got all goal scorers in this win, being at the club before the takeover even happened. Um, mm. Apart from Dan Byrne, of course. It's right on the cusp, so right on the cusp. You, you know, one, yeah. but you know what I mean. Yeah. But in terms of also the players, in terms of the stature, you know, Martin's mentioned Tonali. Dan Byrne is someone that we talked about at the start of this season about. Oh bloody hell, Dan Byrne in the Champions League. I'm yeah. not sure about that. That does play a part in it in terms of what Eddie Howe's done in terms of the prestige and the gro- like the idea of where this club is going, doesn't it, Gregor? Yeah, I mean, Dan Byrne speaking afterwards was like, you know, it's like seeing a little boy who's kind of, you know grown up and suddenly his dreams come true he didn't know it didn't feel real to him and then he was asked about what you know how was how was Eddie Howe kind of fostered this this spirit he said he said it was largely about kind of making sure that the right characters are coming in and that everyone knows that they have to work for the team first and foremost rather than for themselves it's, there's no stars and that's what you see in this team and that's what the that's what the contrast has been with mm. Paris Saint-Germain particularly uh, look, there's a bit of a change of direction now. Clearly, they've lost a lot of stars, Messi and Neymar, uh, and a few others, and they still have Kylian Mbappe and you know uh, Usman Dembele, uh, Donnarumma, Hakimi. Yeah, look, they've still got a team. Fernandes. Yeah, Hakimi. Yeah, I mean, I, I I disagree with you. I think that you you look at PSG's team and you feel that someone should probably be able to get more than we saw from from them in this game out of this team, particularly. Making sure that Mbappe stays out wide and gets on the ball. No, I know, I know. Some cracking managers. I know, and that's about culture and and kind of you know the whole overview of the project. So I absolutely agree. I just still fundamentally think you look at Newcastle's team, and you've got Sean Longstaff who was outstanding. He Mm. like bullied them. He was throwing them, you know, covered every blade of grass, made so many uh, tackles. He's still got Jamal Lascelles playing at at centre half. You've got. Shar, who's a good player, but he's been rejuvenated enormously by Eddie Howe and Dan Byrne. Uh, like, yes, the, the, this team has kind of grown in stature as they have developed over the last year and a bit. But I still think that they're they're producing, you know, levels and standards and and uh, results and performances that I would never ever ever have foreseen from mm. this team. I want to come back to Newcastle and the column you've written this morning, Martin. But Tom, bringing you in because Gregor and the guys are talking about PSG and where they stand now and some of the changes they've made. Luis Enrique, the man in charge at the minute, give give the listeners a sense of what what PSG are at the moment. Are they in a massive transitional stage away from that Galatico period? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think. In a way, PSG are always kind of in transition. You know, there's never really a stable project going on there. But what they're kind of trying to do at the moment is to is to have some kind of reset. You know, and obviously Neymar and Messi have gone, and the idea is to kind of now put faith in in kind of younger players to give Luis Enrique time to kind of instill a more uh, long term idea rather than just let's go and win now. The problem with that, obviously, is the main player, Kylian Mbappe. No one's really sure if he's going to be around any longer than a year, and this team is still very much built around him. I mean, it's fair to say their season hasn't started well. I think they've won three out of their first seven games in, in Liga, and they're sitting fifth in the table. Um, and I think there was an idea that they're playing OK and that everyone was, was fairly happy with it was ticking along. But this result, I think, will 
go down very badly in Paris, no doubt about that. Not just the result. I mean, you know, we all know that in the Champions League these days, big teams can afford to lose in the groups once, even twice, and still get through. But the way they lost 4-1, the way a team like Newcastle, who will be seen in, in France as a team who have just kind of come back into the Champions League, you know, this will it's, it's a big blow for, for Luis Enrique, no doubt about that. Will they still be thinking even despite this reset, despite losing Messi and Neymar, will they still be thinking we should be winning, we should be winning the Champions League? Or, or is that part of the reset a bit more realistic as expectations? Yeah, I think if you've got Kylian Mbappe in the team, you're always looking to win the Champions League. And I think, you know, isn't the idea is not, we've started, I mean, as Gregor said, you know, they've still got good players in this team. You know, still got Usman Dembele, for example. You know, lots of really good top players in the side. You know, you don't look at that starting eleven and think, OK, this is a five-year project. You know, you look at that starting eleven and think that, that could rival any team in, in Europe, right? So, I mean, I think they still see the Champions League as very much a realistic target. And, you know, it's early days. You know, I don't think anyone's going to go overboard, you know, at this point. They can still get through the group um, and they can still challenge. He also looked at the 11 and, and thought, tactically, the way that they went out, basically it was 4-2-4. And one of the midfielders was a 17-year-old. He, he was brilliant. Who was their best player? He was, he was mm. outstanding. But still, you know, that's bold. Mm. And, and you saw the tone, Martin referenced it. Saw, the tone was set in the opening three minutes when Marquinhos stepped... Stand on the ball, drag it back. He was baiting Newcastle, saying, "Yeah, come and play, come and mm. press." They knew that that's what Newcastle are good at, and they thought we're going to play through you, and we're going to be better than you. And Newcastle obliged, and mm. they were all over them, and mm. they couldn't. You know, there was a moment, there was a brief period in the first half where they did get through a couple of times, and and Zaire Emery was running into space, but Newcastle just absolutely. I, I keep using that. I want to use that word. They bullied them. Mm. They bullied them physically. Yeah, they absolutely did. Speaking about PSG winning the Champions League, uh, Martin, your column this morning, why Newcastle United will win the Champions League before PSG. Mm. Tell us more. It's all there in the headline, mate. <laughs> uh, you know, it's not just teams that win the Champions League, it's clubs. It's, it's, it's clubs that are well set up, clubs that are well run. You look at the clubs that have done it from this country in the last 10 years or so, and it's Manchester City, a well-run club. We can all see that their recruitment's good, their, their management is good. Liverpool the same, excellent recruitment, got them a fabulous team, very well-run club. They won the Champions League. Even Chelsea, and we can argue about Chelsea, and we can argue about Roman Abramovich, and oh, you know, he sacked Carlo Ancelotti when he came second and stuff, and we can debate all of that. But what he did was he backed his own judgment on managers. He, he threw enough money at the team that they rose above managerial changes and, and, and everything like that. And as we have seen since he's left, funnily enough, it's not that easy to run an elite football team. You know, Manchester United are proving that on a, almost on a weekly basis at the moment. Um, so, well-run clubs win the Champions League, um, and Newcastle are a well-run club, and it's very easy. It's, oh, they've got all this money, and of course they've got money. That, that's that's you know they got bought by Saudi Arabia. It's not a newsflash to to say Newcastle have now got money, and you and you look at uh, the period since the takeover, only Chelsea have spent more than Newcastle. Eddie Howe has done a very good job of sort of diverting away from that, but it's not been spent in that Galactico-type way that PSG um, spent it. It has, it has been spent in, in probably the hardest market that you could possibly deal in at the moment, which is that 30 to £50 million. Because 30 to £50 million is a lot of money uh, in football terms. Not if you're Saudi Arabia, but but football clubs are um, reined in by financial fair play and all of that. So 
It's a lot of money for Newcastle, 30 to 50 million pounds. And it's a lot of money to make work because there's a lot of clubs that are spending 50 million pounds on a player, 45 million pounds on a player. And, and not getting that value, you know, at all. I mean, if you look at West Ham and if you look at Everton, they're all clubs in that bracket. They spend 30 to 50 million pounds and you buy a lot of rubbish as well as the, uh, the, odd, the odd good ones. So that's the market that Newcastle are working in. They're playing it very, very well. Their recruitment's been excellent. Eddie Howe has been excellent. The club has been run really, really well. So it's not just about the money because... The team they beat 4-1 last night has got an awful lot of money yeah. and they haven't won the Champions League. I was the only um, British newspaper journalist, I think, that was there when they played in the Champions League final uh, against Bayern Munich. Um, and they got beat. That mm. was their chance. That yeah. was the chance of that Galactico era to, right, here we go, This is we win the Champions League. And they didn't. They lost to Bayern Munich in Lisbon in front of nobody. Newcastle then this season... Do we think that some of those players that we've talked about, the Longstaffs, the Dan Burns, and even to an extent Eddie Howe, this might be a bit harsh, I'm just posing the question, make it more of a kind of the, the upstarts where that keeps the expectation a little bit low? Because now the, the, it might transfer onto the top of the group, they've drawn in Milan, they've beaten PSG, bring on Dortmund, we're going to the semi-finals. It, it, look, they could win it. If, if, we, if, if we're looking at it this season... You beat PSG 4-1, you can't say this team could never win the Champions League. So this season, they could do it, but they probably won't. The point I'm making is, Man City's first statement result in the Champions League is probably 2-0 against Bayern Munich. It's a dead rubber for Bayern Munich, but for Manchester City, it was was very much a live game that night. And they beat Bayern Munich 2-0, and that was 2011. There's not a single player on the pitch is in the Champions League final team. Uh, the manager chain changes twice since then. So, I'm not saying they get there. With, you know, it, it, They might get there, but without Eddie Howe and without these 11 players or some of these 11 players. But the course that they are on, I see that. I see them getting to where they want to be, i.e. champions of Europe. I see them doing it quicker than... Paris Saint-Germain because I think they're a better run club. Tom, how would you respond to those points? I, mean, I think there is a difference. I, I, I kind of agree in maybe longer term with Martin, but I think there's a difference between beating a kind of a, a weary and, and incoherent PSG early on in September to you know beating Real Madrid over two legs in a semi-final, for mm. example. You know, Beating these kind of big teams who have been there for the last 10 years in the knockouts is a very different animal to, to you know beating a, a fairly weary club in, in the group stage. Um I mean, I think it's also worth, I don't know, it's worth kind of pushing back a little bit on this idea of fairy tales, right? I mean, I, I get it and, it and it's difficult because, you know, that image of kind of Dan Byrne standing in the, you know, in the middle of a stadium with his arms sort of outstretched and Anthony Gordon kind of having this brilliant duel with Kylian Mbappe down the wing, like, you know, this is this is kind of what, what you want to see, right? But equally, it's impossible to ignore the fact that this is a a game between Qatar and Saudi Arabia. It's it's impossible to ignore the fact that this game happened on the same day as the World Cup, which we're going to talk about hosting a decision which effectively hands Saudi Arabia probably the tournament in 2034. You know, this is, yes, you know, on the pitch, you know, a lovely kind of story about a player, you know, Dan Burney was at Wigan, you know, a few years ago, great. Equally, you know, the global context here is, is too state clubs going head to head very much in the context of a kind of a a political a political 
propaganda war, right? I, got, I, I almost forgot that too. And this is he's, Tom's absolutely right. And mm. then you got swept saw, up. No, you saw no. Like, you, I love I love Newcastle as a club. I love mm. Newcastle, a great city. The people are great. It's, you know, I'm I'm so happy to see them after all the kind of the decades, the lost decade of Mike Ashley. Uh, feeling positive about the club again, but then the you know the the camera panned to the to the stands and you see a little boy effectively wearing a Saudi Arabia away strip, like and you just remember, yeah, 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 absolutely, that is the context that we have to remember about this. this is the and idea. people will give you dog abuse for it, but it's the truth. It's like it, it, it's you can't forget that. You can't forget. But that. that's kind of what I meant earlier when I was talking about those players and it. If we're being incredibly cynical about it, it's almost good for the PR that Dan Byrne Absolutely. and Almiron and Shah are scoring the goals and, you know, Longstaff. It, it helps, doesn't it, that it's not Tonali and Guimaresh necessarily and Isaac who are scoring the four goals. It's, it's, a, it's a much better look, isn't it? Even Eddie Howe's appointment as manager yeah. was like, you know, he'd been out of the game for nearly two years, I think, after being relegated with Bournemouth. He wasn't the, you know, he wasn't a, a big name appointment. And none of the signings, we discussed this earlier, Martin and I, none of the signings have really been big names. There have been players who other clubs in, in the Premier League, you know, top six-ish, would have maybe gone, Sven Botman they probably would have gone for, Guimaraes too maybe. But otherwise, you know, Harvey Barnes, I, you know, I, I, if I was a, <laughs> a manager of another club, Harvey. I'm a big fan of Harvey Barnes. But they're clever, they're clever signings. And a lot of them weren't even involved last night. And they're bringing on Matt, Matty Target and Jacob Murphy. Uh, and Anderson, who's come from the academy, like this is so. It's not just like a, a narrative. It is true. Martin's right. They've they spent a lot of money and they spent it well, but it's very early. It's very mm. early in this project, and that's why, you know, I agree they're being a very well well run club so far. But it's always fragile. Right? Well, they've got to get to that next stage because there will be. They will need to be upgrades. They've got to. Be, they will. They will. You know upgrade in certain positions that, that's undoubtable but uh, Eddie the French equivalent of Eddie Howe does not get the Paris Saint-Germain job mm. and that's what I mean about a well-run club now we can argue that their first target was Emery um, would have been a good appointment too. and he would have been a good appointment too because you're not doing too bad at Aston Villa so those appointments were smart appointments you know, Eddie, the French Eddie Howe is not getting into PSG any, any time. Even this, the great, the great reboot around, around, around um, the products of the Parisian suburbs, of which you know Paris Saint Germain should be able to produce the best homegrown team mm-hmm. in Europe, because there's no more fertile area than the, the suburbs of East Paris and, and and stuff. But that's still being done with Luis Enrique. Mm. That's not being done with some guy that's gonna that's gonna connect on a on a level with the teenage youth of Paris. It's being done with with a a, a stellar manager, a, a household name as as far as managers are concerned in Europe. Yeah, it's also not just about the signings. It's worth saying. I mean, you know, look at City for example. Look at their success. It wasn't just about them signing Robinho, and it, it was about them getting the best directors, the best scouts, the yeah. best yeah. training ground. You know, that exactly. when you have all the money, the smart clubs don't just spend it on a new right back. They invest it in in things that they know are gonna be best in class in in in, in European football. You know, and that's what City have done, and that's what Newcastle are doing as well at the moment. Mm. Shit, sorry, sorry, I was going to say, take me talk about Manchester United. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I'm, I'm just remembering that intro where I talked about oh, we had to fit in, and we're having a fans- fascinating conversation <laughs> yeah. about Newcastle, which I'm sure we will do for the rest of the season as well, because if the performance uh, against PSG is anything to go by, this won't be their only big night in the Champions League. 
but one big night for uh, a United in the North and another big night for a different United, but it, not a big night of a disastrous kind for Eric Ten Hag. His struggling team beaten 3-2 by Galatasaray. Ten Hag saying after the match, the players are behind me. Well, my question is how far behind me and can mm. they actually listen to was a single Tommy word Doherty? you're saying? It was Tommy Doherty when... Uh... When when the, the when the board said that they were right behind him, he said, "I don't want them behind me. I want them in front of me, so I can see what they're doing." <laughs> well, that is um, a, it is an interesting point, isn't it? Because Paul Hurst and Charlotte Dunker have written a piece this morning that you can read on the Times website, talking about the kind of slight rifts, divisions that are kind of starting to open up in the United camp. But we'll come on to that. On to the game itself. It all looked to be going well. Rasmus Hoyland scored two goals. Looks like the next next Erling Haaland. We're all getting excited. We're all getting carried away. And then they implode again. I mean, how how does a club become so brittle so quickly with new players, Martin? I mean, how 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 do we rationalise this in the grand scheme of Manchester because United? If, you, if the recruitment isn't quite there, um, and and the club, yeah, we're coming back to <laughs> circular argument about well-run clubs, and at the moment, Manchester United haven't been that for a long, long time. Um, and it keeps falling at the feet of various managers, uh, different kinds of managers. They've they've tried the uh, they tried the sort of the, the experienced British manager in the Ferguson mode, and that didn't work. So they got the crackerjack European coach, an innovator in in uh, in Louis Van Gaal, and that didn't work. And it's Jose Mourinho, and then it's Oli, and now it's Ten Hag, and it, it's they're in that cycle where you just uh, bring me the opposite of him. Mm. Um, but so, speaking of cycles, manager, the managers, all those managers that you outlined, they come in with hope and expectation based on the fact that they're different from the person. Based before. on the fact it's Manchester United, yeah, and, and everyone is thinking, if I can't get Manchester United going, I might as well yeah. pack it in. And then they have a good season or a season of hope and you know prospects. Eric Ten Hag won a trophy last season, got them into the Champions League. This season in the summer, you know, made the signings he wanted to make. Mm-hmm. Andre Onana got rid of David de Gea, a club stalwart. And then it seems to turn. I mean, what 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 is it that's happening here, Gregor? Is it players just coming into a club that's so tense, so desperate to turn things around that, that it slightly impacts their game? You know, Sofia and Amrabat, you must have been absolutely having sleepless nights over that defensive line for the goal. I mean, playing as a yeah. makeshift left-back, we talked about him being a great player, and undoubtedly he is. He has been a great player. He was a great player at the World Cup. He's a great player for Fiorentina. Not necessarily a left back. But not no. necessarily a left back. And so you're then are you denting his confidence by doing that and all of a sudden he's doubting himself when in the grand scheme of Manchester United. Well yeah, I mean what you're talking about there is like lots of different moving parts and that is undoubtedly what has been the issue for Manchester United for a long time. Part of that's because of recruitment. How did Manchester United I know they've got injuries at fullback. How do they not even have one potential fullback from their academy who could be play right or left back and Dallow could probably move over to left back and that would be a more satisfactory situation how did they not have that like there's, you know their, their academy's fallen away in recent years as well uh, in the shadow of Manchester City's um so that comes back and then that come also comes down to recruitment now there's they're not really got a squad that's well enough well rounded enough um and, and having said all that you're absolutely right Hoyland looked like you know, he thought this was a breakthrough moment for him. This was mm-hmm. the, the headlines were going to be all about him, and it was. It was. There was a lot of positive aspects about the performance, but those kind of those weaknesses came to the fore again because Amrabat runs inside, which I, you know a, a left back never does. Runs deep with the ball, plays a a bad forward pass, and he's obviously playing everyone on side, 
and he doesn't know how to defend a throw-in, and both goals come from from the left left side. Um, so we just keep going round in circles with Manchester United. We've done it for years. The other fundamental thing is is comes back to the culture at the club, and that comes from the owners. And we've just spoken about the people, right people in right positions. Manchester United haven't had that at mm. any point in their in their tenure, at any point. And I still don't think they have. And that's been highlighted by all the off-field issues and the way they've dealt with it. So, like I've I've said it every, almost every week now for for a, a couple of years until there's new owners. I don't think this will change. Mm. Tom Rasmus Hoyland, obviously, a lot of pressure to put on a young man to say you're going to save this club. But in terms of signings and positions that were, have been problem positions for Manchester United for a while, having a centre forward who is big, quick. I mean, the way he ran away from the Galatasaray defender for their goal, Fabulous. absolutely Shepherd brilliant, goal. brilliant, brilliant goal. Is is that something that they can at least latch onto, or is it too much to expect a young player to 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 carry carry the uh, excitement, the minimal excitement in a club that's currently going through such a difficult patch? I mean, it's a lot. It's you know, it's not ideal. That's for sure. You wouldn't want to put you know the kind of success of United season on on this guy's shoulders. I mean, it felt like to me that that should have been a game where everyone was. Raving about Hoyland, you know, I thought he played brilliantly. The two two goals were fantastic. That second goal, the power and the, the speed, and and then to kind of show that ability just to slow down at the last minute and and apply a, a really cute finish. He looked like a superstar in my opinion in that game. It, it reminded me a bit like of when Rooney when Rooney scored the hatch against Fenerbahce, you know, just like that kind of raw um, fearlessness, you know, against an opponent. But you know, United's disaster class kind of took over and and. You know, dominated everything. I mean, you know, we're talking about the signings in the summer. They, you know, spent money. Like they, you know, they brought in Onana, who was the Champions League's best goalkeeper. Mason Mount. You know, you'd think that was a fairly, you know, sure thing. I mean, they've got injuries. You know, there's no doubt about that. They're back four. You know, Martinez now sure. You know, all out. I mean, that you know, it, it's a patched up defence, and I think we saw that with the mistakes that were were there. But Ten Hag was brought in to to coach. You know, you know, his his kind of reputation at Ajax was very much formed on on being someone who was good at making teams who could play out from the back that he was one of the best kind of pressing coaches in Europe his his job at United has been to to be a kind of a PR you know firefighter right I mean you know mm-hmm. it's easy to kind of list off the top of my head you know Sancho Anthony uh, Greenwood um, you know there are so many things he's had to kind of deal with in the last six months I don't... Just, just just to pick you up on the coaching point I would argue that the coaching side of things is the one of the bits that looks most confused this season and that's where I think maybe some of the pressure comes on to him where fans are looking at it and going I don't know what you're trying to do here you know whether it's with playing Amrabat at left back I'm not sure what you're trying to do you know last season it was built on Casemiro great signing had a good season being quite solid in games going 2-0 up against Newcastle in that Carabao Cup final and just shutting it down I'm not, I'm not quite sure what the tactics are this season. As much as I take all your points about the off-field distractions, I'm not sure he's necessarily delivering on that kind of tactical acumen that he's supposed to have. But I mean, I just I don't know if you can separate those two things. Like it, it feels to me like, you know, a, a coherent team that works together, is feeling confident and focused on on their jobs, is also one that is united off the pitch. You know, and we've just talked about how Newcastle, you know, seem to be all going the right direction. United, it seems to be. I, I can imagine that. You know, for example, you, we had that chance with Rashford when he was pulling away. I think a good Rashford, confident, in form, happy with himself, is is just shooting and putting that in the corner. But he sort of did the ring over it, wondering whether he should pass, and in the end, doesn't either. You know, and there were there were moments like that all over the pitch. Players essentially not performing to the to anywhere near even par let alone kind of performing over their over their ability when Onana for example at the moment just yeah. kind of every game it's error after error you know and we're seeing good players play beneath themselves 
Martin, final point on you. Um, Eric Ten Hag, is he under pressure now? To, you know, Think about those two points Tom and I have just made in terms of his coaching ability, what he's getting out of this team, or is it all about the things that Gregor and Tom have talked about I, off I, the pitch? I don't think he's under pressure. I don't think he's under pressure. I, I don't see a single, maybe Dallas, um, United player this season that looks improved. Uh, you know, in last season, you could you could go like, oh, he's got Rashford going, you know that that's good, and he's, he's got Luke Shaw going, and that's good. Now Luke Shaw's injured, which is unfortunate. But you go through the rest of the team, and you think, who has been improved by being with Eric Ten Hag and Manchester United this season? And it's very hard to see a player in that team that you're thinking, well, this guy's moving in the right direction. If he could get more going like this, um. I must admit, I've never been the same uh, the fan of Anana the way that everyone else was. I realise he he was he was good for Inter Milan last season, but he always looked a goalkeeper that was prone to error to me every single time I saw him. I, I never was never filled with great confidence, um, and so I can't say that all oh, this has come as a complete shock to me because it hasn't. The thing that puts Ten Hag under pressure is that a lot of the signings have been clearly had his fingerprints on them. Yes, well, that's what I meant in the mm. summer. You know, he'd had that first season of impressive, and this this felt like his summer. You know, get rid of a guy like David De Gea, who, I mean, I never really understood the level of criticism that he got, but he was a stalwart for Manchester United through a lot of difficult times. That that to me does put pressure on him. Yeah, and it's not just him. There's a lot, of, you know, a lot of players. Anthony, there's a lot of players who've who who he's either worked worked with before or have come from the Eredivisie, and he's and he's clearly said yes. I'll have that one, hmm. uh, and and they're not working so far. So, like, I don't think he should be under pressure, but it won't take long before he he will be. It's a huge club. Yeah, it's just it's just, this this is the other thing when people talk about confidence and stuff. You know, seventy eight thousand or whatever capacity is now, nearly eighty thousand or whatever. Um, that's a lot of people on your case. You know, it's wonderful when it's all going for you. If if you're Newcastle, to be at a stadium like St James's Park with that level of noise is absolutely fabulous now. But we saw the the opposite when it wasn't, when the when the fans weren't behind the team and when the fans were angry with the team and angry with the ownership and angry with the manager. It, it, it sucked all of the life out of the club. That's what's happening at Manchester United now. It's 78,000 people on your case. Mm. Um, and that's a, that's a lonely position to be in, you know, for some of these guys. They won't, they won't be used to that. They won't be used to the expectation, necessarily, at Manchester United. Yeah, that expectation will be there at Old Trafford on Saturday. Manchester United home to Brentford. That's an easy one, isn't it? Can't, can't wait to get the season off and running. Hang on a minute, we said that about Crystal Palace and Galatasaray. By the way, this well, was the easy run. I can remember being yes, in here a couple of weeks ago. Oh, you, you, you couldn't get a better run of fixtures. Well, now exactly. they've lost two of their first three of those yes, fixtures. Yes, exactly. Someone said Galatasaray were dark horses, though. Can't yeah, that was you. Well done. <laughs> uh, a, rare, a, rare, a rare good prediction from you. Yeah. Uh, the other game, yeah, the, yeah, Chris Wilder, we don't get many wrong. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, I have, to, I have to get when Thank I see one. Really. Yeah. Um, the other big game of the weekend is Arsenal and Manchester City both teams in Champions League action uh, defeat for Arsenal against Lons Manchester City winning against Leipzig uh, we're not going to dwell too much on their performances in those games we're going to look ahead instead to that match and talk about the injury to Bakaya Saka and Mikel Arteta's management of him Martin this is a young guy injury's been discussed for the last couple of weeks slightly dismissed Yeah, it seems well, to be coming back to bite them 
Yeah, well, he, he's injured every single match. He plays every single match, and he comes off injured every single match. So, um, you know, call me Mr. Picky, but there appears to be a pattern there. And sooner or later, the injury that takes him out, out of the game, and, and that one, he came off in the first half, didn't he? A 30-odd minute. I was watching Manchester United, I must admit, but 30-odd um, minutes. So... You know that that could be difficult, and and I've seen all the different permutations, and one of the permutations is, you know, basically jab him up and get him out there. You know, and uh, I don't know if they still do that uh, these days. They certainly used to. Um, it's it, it's very you can, it, how you can see how important it is to Arsenal. I think he's got. Is he the first player to five goals and five assists in any major league in Europe this season? I think you'll find. Mm. Um, so that makes him a uh, that makes him an absolutely vital player for Arsenal against Manchester City. Whether you can send a guy out there on one leg um, in a game uh, that is going to have enormous uh, intensity, I'm not quite sure. Tom, what do you think about Arsenal's approach to this game? Not just the Saka situation; they're obviously at home. We've just talked about Manchester United and expectation at home. Mikel Arteta had difficult, different performances against City at home. There was that match a couple of seasons ago where they ran them really close. Gabriel sent off and everyone thought this Arsenal team could be something. Then, of course, last season, uh, beaten at home in a match that probably was one of the title deciders. How, how do you think Arteta's looking at this match in terms of both in terms of his use of Saka and then also what he might be expecting? planning to put out on the pitch I think Arsenal have to get closer to City you know it feels like last season that game when when City blew them away that felt like a kind of a real turning point in the title race it felt like City said look you're still a long way from where we are you know and, and Arsenal just couldn't lay a glove on, glove on them they were you know out for out muscled out you know the tactics were all wrong I think they have to kind of even if I don't think you know you can never say anything is must win at this stage of the season I think the result isn't necessarily the be all and end all but I think they have to psychologically show that they can get closer to them they have to match them much more than they did before I mean I think with the with the with the Saka situation you know Arteta relies on him so much he's played sort of 87 consecutive league games mm. you know and and there are, there are all these teams at the top of the table they, they all have star players but you look at how Pep Guardiola rotates all his players even even the big ones you know even Ireland gets a rest sometimes you know and he had this idea last season didn't he Arteta that Saka has to get used to playing kind of 70-75 games because that's what all the top players do but actually, if you look at kind of the best teams now, you know, look at how Klopp uses Salah, for example. They make sure they have backups. They make sure they have cover. And Arsenal have gone through so many transfer windows now where they just have either decided there isn't someone out there who can rotate with Saka or they think it's not not necessary. And, you know, yeah, OK, maybe he got a kick. You know, I always think we can't sit here in a studio and, and second guess Arsenal's medical department who have you know all the data all the green zones all the red zones you know they, they know better than we do where a player is in terms of their fitness and where they are and how close they are to an injury but equally it doesn't take a, a rocket scientist to see that Saka is getting kicked a lot mm. and that you know <laughs> this injury was going to come right and I think Arteta is the kind of coach where he's so meticulous he wants everything to be absolutely perfect every single match that maybe he we saw the lack of rotation last season cost Arsenal as well, you know, and we're seeing it again here. And, and if they go into this match, even with Saka starting 70% fit, that's a massive blow for them. Kicking wingers is something you did for a living, Gregor, for a long time. <laughs> so I'm going to let you finish on this one. But something you also have talked about uh, from your career is, you know, having painkilling injections, having, you know, making decisions to play a game when you're not fully, fully 100% fit. Is this something that we should be worried about for a young England star at this stage in his career, only 22? 
that this is happening and that, as Tom says, he's not necessarily being looked after, potentially? Perhaps. I mean, I kind of do agree with Tom, though, that you, you have got to you've got to give Arsenal the benefit of the doubt largely speaking and that if he's that they wouldn't play him if he wasn't fit to play there, there's a difference between playing with a knock and what it looked like coming out off this time with a muscle injury it's mm-hmm. like you, you've essentially got to mask pain or deal with it and play but if you've got a muscle injury then you can't do that so this is different but it's, a, it's an enormous you know, it's a remarkable length of, of unbroken games and appearances particularly for someone so young but that just is because he's their most important player and Arsenal fundamentally without without him and Martinelli on wing on the wings are a completely different team. Uh not as dangerous. And you know, I wrote a piece last last season about how you how you possibly defend against Saka. But it's like from a place of theory, because I know I couldn't have done it <laughs> in, in practice. But he because he's he can go inside, he always he always like Checks and 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 dummies and manipulates the ball to move, to manipulate and move the defender and open just open up a little half yard of space to leap through it. And there's there's no one better than him at doing that. Uh, and coming inside and scoring goals, going down the line and whipping balls across the box. He's an outstanding player, but that, that, that's why they want him in the team all the time. Yeah, well, we'll see. Go on, Martin. No, I was just about to say, like, no, no, it's not a not a final point about this. Well, I, I would say that the jabbing people up. I don't know how, to what extent it still goes on. It is certainly nothing like it was um, in what would be termed the good old days. I think, <laughs> and I, I, I can tell you a story if you want about the good old days. So we're talking to John uh, John Gorman when he was Glenn Hoddle's assistant with England, and he's talking about when he was at. Carlisle United and um, you know what they used to do to get players out there and um, and they had a groin injury I don't know if you can see where this one's going <laughs> and uh, he, he took an injection to get him out there and he was t- talking to a crowd of fellas um, and it was a very male uh, populated industry sports journalism at their day, so it was, it was a completely male audience and he told us where he had the injection um, and it was one of those things that once you heard it, you could never unhear it. And it's a bit like uh, pantomime, you know, I you know when they say about men talk about the Roman Empire, every think about the Roman Empire every single day. I don't ever think about the Roman Empire every <laughs> single day. What I think about is the injection that John Gorman had directly into his left testicle <laughs> oh, to play a match good. for Carlisle, friggin' United. I mean that. Is you know this is not the Champions League. He's not going out for Real Madrid. There, this is Carlisle United in Division Four. I think it was at that stage, and yeah, directly into his left testicle. There that was that was the good old days for you, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. I'm not sure Saka would girls. do that. No, but he will do. I bet the, you he will still do anything he can yeah. if he's physically possible. Do, to does this podcast come with any sort of certificate? <laughs> or any, I'm not sure. <laughs> I should have it, included it in the it, intro, it, shouldn't is I? Is it an X? Is it? Uh, you know, could we? Uh, is it an X-rated podcast? I'm not sure we're that at that stage, are we? We'll see. We've still got the second yeah, half of the show to come and we've got to talk about those refereeing decisions and replays so and tense. future World Cups. So if you're enjoying the show, stick with us and make sure you're subscribed to get your show on Mondays and Thursdays. Stick with us. We've got loads left. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, 
calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. I'm Tom Clark and I'm joined by Martin Samuel, Tom Allnott and Gregor Robertson. And from a load of old bollocks to a more load of old bollocks, <laughs> and that is the VAR audio that we heard. And I'm sure it's going to be four words, which I'm sure I cannot not see it as part of merchandise, memorabilia, on sarcastic t-shirts, on stag do's, at football matches, on banners, for years and years to come. That's wrong, that does. I mean, it's just definitely going to be, isn't it? I mean, it's so good. Let's let's hear it again. We've got to hear it again. Let's let's hear it again. Uh, check complete. Check complete. It's fine. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. Off. Thank, Thank you, mate. Wait, wait, wait. wait, wait. Oh, On-field decision was offside. Are you are you happy with this? Yeah. Are you happy with this? Offside decision. Go. Yeah. That's, no, that's not what it does. What? On-field decision was offside. Are you happy with this image? Yeah, it's onside. The image we gave you is onside. He's played. He's gone offside. There we have it. The only piece of audio to ever appear on the game podcast. More incoherent than one of my intros. Gentlemen, I mean, it's absolutely remarkable, isn't it? Gregor, I'm going to come to you first as a former professional. Thinking about that conversation going on whilst you would be playing a game and, you know, decisions are being made. Knowing now that that conversation goes on in the VAR studio, thinking about all the things we talked about with VAR, what what was your instant reaction when you heard that? Actually, sympathy. Really? It, yeah, it humanised it. You know, it's like we know we we call them all incompetent. We say we you know refereeing uh, standards are shocking. We say that people are useless. We we you know we, it's often the tone of the conversation is often pretty, yeah, nasty. Uh, and this guy has made an absolute blooper. And you just, I think I said on Monday as well, you you can't imagine what you must have been thinking and feeling in those immediate moments after that. We can now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it did humanise it and it kind of dispelled any idea of, you know, conspiracy theories that people, seem, I actually hadn't seen much of, but people seemed to think they were they were out there. Um, you know, it, it just... It just humanised it, and it was someone who made, made a huge error. And uh, I, the first thing I felt was sorry for him. Martin, sympathy? Was that your first thought? I'm guessing not. Well, yes and no. I mean, look, it, the rule 
that they couldn't restart the game. Let's 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 just we can start there that they that they can't restart the game. The IFAB rule that that, that everyone has, has has bowed down to. If you think about that rule logically, and what it actually means and what it's there to prevent. It's there to prevent a constant process of reassessment. It's there to make the VAR judgment final. So that if you say, that's a free kick, um, your VAR assistant or anyone else can't rock up in the booth two minutes later and say, oh, I've just seen this other angle that means that he was he, that was probably all right and we didn't need to give a free kick oh now we've got to rewind the game it's to make sure that you cannot constantly 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 be reassessing a var decision it is not there for something as extreme as this but there is nobody in that booth apart from the two tech engineers the the, the two tech engineers are the only two people with the common sense to go oh no actually this is an exceptional circumstance. We've got to stop the game. Mm. Everybody else cannot think for themselves in that moment and think, well, what's the worst thing that could happen here? Are IFAB seriously, seriously going to sanction the English Premier League and the PGMOL and everybody involved in this for actually getting the right decision as opposed to sticking to the one that we all know is wrong? And that's your first problem because the people in charge aren't good enough I'm, I'm sorry I, and I, I, I take what I take what Gregor says but you have got to I can have you can have sympathy for people but you you've also got to be able to admit not good enough mm. they're not good enough we've got to find better or we've got to train people better or we've got to do something to make sure this gets better because that was just from start to finish not even the initial mistake, which is bad enough, but the failure to respond to it in any way that is that is common sense. There that was a is, bit of panic. There was a well, a more. Well, there's a, bit a of huge panic, amount of panic. But then you don't. But then the panic comes from not being confident enough to just go right. Okay, look, this is what we've got to do. Boom. This is what we do. But it also comes from the, from the, from from the systems and from the laws. Yeah. So but, like you know they they're so bound by you know knowing that they can't. Do anything once the game had restarted. Yeah. That that's why the, that's where the terror comes from. You know they can't they can't make up for the mistake they've just made. So like there's they a, could I, have I, done, Gregor. They could have done. Well, they they can't because they're bound by they're so bound by the laws. Yeah, but they didn't have to. Be. They didn't. Okay. Have so to I be. just think that fundamentally there's two different two different things here. There's and it's it's broadly about re- officiating in football. Is that y- yes, you have the how competent people are, and that's that is an issue. There's not enough people who are. You see, really seem to be even good enough referees, actually. No. But then there's the rules and how uh, how constricting they are sometimes. And it's the rules of the game, too, sometimes. It's not like... I know this is going off-piste a bit, but there was a goal last night. I keep going on about the offside uh, rule. It's it's a complete ass. There was a goal that Atletico Madrid scored last night, the first goal, when a ball was played through to... It was intended for Saul, who was offside... And the defend he was on the defender's shoulder, so the defender, not knowing he was offside, slid in to block the pass and inadvertently pushed the ball into Alvaro Morata's path and Morata scored. But because that was the start of a new phase of play, the goal stood. Now they went to the monitor, the ref went to the monitor, he saw he clearly saw that 
it was you know the freeze frame was there that Saul was standing in offside position and like the defender could do nothing about it but he knows that the rule says that that's a new phase of play and he had to let the goal stand the law is an ass like so there's it, it's the same in, in VAR like there's there's so many things that are uh, restrictive even the fact like I would say that only referees can be in the VAR booth mm. is restrictive like people talk about uh, you know putting putting ex pros in like uh, I, I, I'm not in agreement with that either but they couldn't do it if they'd wanted to. They'd have to qualify as a referee first. Like that. That's that's. There's so many. There, there are two things. It's, there's there's kind of the human error fact, but there's also the fact that the laws and the structures are woefully inadequate. Tom, human error, sympathy, laws are nonsense. Where where are you coming down after well, hearing I, I that? I agree with Gregor. I, mean, I think that isn't that a case that, that this is the fundamental problem with VAR, right? Is that you're trying to impose black and white scientific decisions on basically what we have all discovered now the vast majority of rules in football are subjective you know there is black I and white. some of us didn't need to discover it now <laughs> no, but some, even, of us, some of us discovered it before they brought in VAR when they were it, writing columns good, saying it's, <laughs> it's all subjective it's all subjective not everything is Thierry Henry against Ireland I've even found myself in this, in this I mean, weird that, that's the fundamental I even found myself in this weird warped place a couple of years ago think, actually thinking offside is now subjective and I know that's that's completely but it is. it's a nonsense. But no, offside it should be like you're either onside or you're not. Offside. So, but the fact the reason it is is because it's because you have to pick a moment where the ball is contacted by the player's foot, and that's like freeze, pulling frames back by sec, like milliseconds. And who knows if you're getting that right? And also, we've also found that like there are some offsides that feel completely against the spirit of the game. So it's, it's just opened up a whole new layer of subjectivity, which is, sorry, Tom, I interrupted. No, That's I mean, we know that technology sick. works in other sports where, for example, like tennis, you know, where there, are, where there are white lines and it's either in or it's out. You know, it works. And it works in football with goal line technology, for example. It should work with offside if the, if the law was kind of correct, if, if the actual spirit of the law was correct, which I think we all probably think is maybe not now. The problem you have is you're, you're asking humans to make these decisions and, and, the, and what VAR has done is it's increased everyone's expectation of those decisions. Yeah. So we know that 98% of decisions currently are correct. So it's only 2% that aren't right, which is a, which is a pretty good percentage for, for refereeing. But the problem is that when, when a decision in that 2% is a big decision like this one, everyone thinks that it should never have been got wrong. And there is a problem with the process. You know, of course there is. Like it, it's, it's completely ludicrous. When you listen to that conversation, my first reaction was, everything was too fast which is ironic because one of our main complaints about VAR is that everything takes too long and you know do everything faster it should be more seamless but my first reaction was why was there not someone just taking a breath and just confirming you know we, we see this in rugby all the time you know, I know it's kind of a cliche to refer to how brilliant rugby is on, on, on technology but you listen to referees they confirm yes is that a try just confirming try yeah and, and through all the noise of the crowd they make sure that the decision they get is crystal clear this one felt like a conversation in the pub. And, you know, it felt like you were just having a conversation between four or five people, everyone's saying different things. And I couldn't believe that someone didn't just take a breath. I understand what Martin's saying, but I do think it's difficult. I do think it's difficult in that two or three seconds to go against the rules. The rules are there to protect the officials because under pressure, in those split-second moments with crowd and with you're doing a huge event on live television, that's a big ask for anyone to make a split decision in that moment to say, I'm going to go against the rules because I believe this is correct. That's a very difficult thing to do. It is, it, it's easier look, for us to say that from here. But you can be good. You can be good and do it. I mean, so the guy that, that gives the Akanji um, off, uh, uh, the Aki goal, the Akanji is the guy that's offside, is thinking phases of play and everything like that. And Harold Well comes in and goes, no, that's nonsense. He's standing in front of the goalkeeper and he's a yard offside. So there is room 
for individual interpretation. One of the problems with offside, um, and I've been banging on about this for ages, the offside rules were never written at a time when anyone thought you would be able to judge a toenail or a fingernail. That wasn't how offside was meant to be. Offside was meant to be judged with the naked eye. If you look at when the rules are written, it's the same as the rule about addressing the ball in golf. If you Once you've addressed the ball, if the ball rolls forward, it's a shot. Whether you've touched it with your club or not, it's a shot. But it wasn't written for a guy sitting there with super slow-mo and 50 quid on Tiger Woods trying to get Phil Mickelson disqualified for signing for the wrong scorecard on the 14th or whatever. It was written for everybody being able to see that the ball had moved. Mm. Offside was written for something that you were meant to see with the naked eye. It should go back to that. You're meant to be able to see, judge this with the naked eye. It's not meant to be something that needs 400 lines drawn and, and everything. The championship are talking about a form of VAR light with fewer, fewer cameras that will identify a significant error, but is not, but is not going to give the sort of offsides that drive everyone up the wall where you're looking at that and thinking... Oh, is it? Is it? What's yeah. it, is it is the line, the lines being drawn on the the on, lines, but the, where the lines are virtually drawn over each other. Yeah, and you're sitting there thinking, well, no one could have flagged that. What happened to benefit of doubt to the attacking team? What happened to the, the thing that changed football? By the way, benefit of doubt to the attacking team. Um, and so the whole thing, and it's what happens if you put the rules in the hands of people. That just like making rules, mm. as opposed to people who have whether they played the game or or love the game or it is in the hands of. Uh, I mean, my granddad thought that um, the the desire to be a policeman should actually disqualify you from ever joining the police force. <laughs> and um, you know, and he's not what you know. It, you know, the people that are on the committee at your local golf club should be disqualified from ever trying to be a committee member. They're exactly the wrong sort of people to be on the committee at your local golf club or the people who are on the committee at the local you want you want six unwilling people you know they they'll get they'll get you know they'll get common sense into the equation and and it's a sort of, it's a similar sort of thing to this myself and uh, gregor gregor would, was going through ifab these the the, the, the technical rock and roll stuff people for, oh yeah it was it's been it's partly <laughs> central at the times when when we're not doing this listeners but um and and it, it, we were looking at the at these people, and gee whiz, um, these are not these are not the people that you want in charge of the the rules of football. They they're really not. Well, yeah, mate, there, mate, there's, mate. there's there's this always seems to be this like this push towards getting ex-pros in if there's a problem in football stick an ex-pro in there right and listen, it's a load, don't, listen that's no, what, the only reason you're on the show it's a load of nonsense <laughs> it's a load of nonsense I know uh, yeah there's like uh, yeah. I've said this well, before well in Cameroon with Samuel Leto <laughs> if you've been following that story <laughs> yeah football is really really you know happy to fast track people and I say that with knowing that I got a fast track degree with the help of the PFA to get into this job so I know there's some irony in this but if there's one place where I would say it would be good to have even current pros having a bit of input it is in IFAB mm. now because as Martin said you know as sad as it may make me sound I was looking at the IFAB committees and you know IFAB are the ruling body who create the laws of the game re, you know tweak them and redraft them and they, they go to a, a football uh, a football uh, panel and a technical panel which is full of referees and they consult them but the football panel is like you know 
Arsene Wenger's on it. Uh, Daniel Amakachi. Uh, Nigerian and Everton legend. Yeah, Zvonimir Boban, Luis Figo. So, but none of them have played in in recent times. And, and soon to be Gregor Robertson. I found uh, no, no, get no, no, your no, transfer no. off already. And there, but there's 21 people there, and I've picked out a few, and most of them are, are actually like suits, confederation yeah. men or women who, you know, have. I I don't want to say they're out of place here, but I've kind of skin in the game to be, to be, part of. These the, the federations and the people who run football. I'm saying that very, yeah. very kind of carefully. Yeah. But. I mean, Chris Wilder did say you were versatile, so maybe you've got it in your in your locker to go and work for IFAB as well. And we need to move on. I'm hoping that uh, Tony, a listener who got in touch after Monday's show, who said we hadn't talked enough about the Liverpool and Tottenham incident, uh, is enjoying this debate. He agreed with Liverpool manager Jurgen Klopp, surprised because he is a Liverpool fan, about the need for a replay. Obviously, <laughs> this is one of many, many topics that I said we're going to have to cover. We're going to have to whiz through it. There shouldn't be a replay, should there? One word, Tom Olnut? Absolutely not. Absolutely, that's two. Martin Samuel? No. No. Gregor Robertson? No. No replay. I have to say quickly, though, oh, here we go. that everything else he said in that clip was, you know, in that, that kind of that press conference was really well sort of measured. That just blew my mind that he would say, he would say something that he knows would stoke the fire so much because everything else was like, we do not, you know, want to blame these people individually. Nothing, you know, they shouldn't be punished. Uh, everyone needs to. It was everything he said has been very mature in this since this happened until he said that. Well, we've come to expect Klopp to be a, a pretty sage voice, I think, in football. You know, you remember about the Super League, he was one of the few big name coaches who kind of came out and said it was a nonsense. With the Qatar World Cup, he spoke very strongly about it last November. You know, I think he started this answer kind of saying, you know, people make mistakes, let's not kind of vilify the officials, you know, and then suddenly he went into this thing and, and you kind of wonder. Is he being put under pressure by the club? Does he think that maybe by saying this he's going to get pressure on the officials so it'll be beneficial for Liverpool in, in the coming weeks? But, I mean, let's go back to the, the actual detail here. It, the Diaz offside was, what, half a metre? I mean, it, I mean, it, it, it was a shocking decision because of the VAR mistake. But the actual decision itself, that was made by a linesman. Like the linesman, yeah. You'd be yeah. saying, OK. Like, yeah, it, and everyone's it, saying it's it unprecedented. It wrong, it's it. not. It's, a, it's, another, it's another type of mistake that's happened. There are, there are a category of mistakes that have happened and have always happened in football. It's just a very different type of mistake. But that one line from Jurgen Klopp does rather negate all of the common sense. <laughs> yeah, you're right, to you're be right. Fair. If you know the Jones right. the Sheepshagger joke, then, you know, that is the Jones the Sheepshagger joke. That really is. Well, know. I'm going to not use that as the leap-off point for the next topic. <laughs> Instead, I'm going to use Tom's... I've me- told that joke in the time. Tom's mention of the uh, Qatar World Cup as the leap-off for the next joke. And I did say that we had a lot to cram in and how we'd get it into an hour, and we're already over, but I hope you're enjoying it anyway, listeners. Uh, Euro 2028, Britain and Ireland to be confirmed as host, right, Martin Ziegler, on the Times website this week. The final will be held at Wembley uh, after Turkey will instead bid for the 2032 tournament alongside Italy. Great news. Sensible decision. And then moments later, Martin Ziegler on the Times website. Six countries, three continents for the 2030 World Cup and 2034 in Saudi Arabia? The 2030 tournament will be held in Spain, Portugal and Morocco. Plus, three games in South America to commemorate the 100 years since the first World Cup talking about sensible thinking from the people in charge of football eh Martin what a wonderful decision this is you know like I write a lot of columns and um, and if you're ever completely short 
of an idea. <laughs> if you haven't got, you haven't got an idea in your head, you've been you've been in a in a, a, a mush magic mushroom haze all week or something <laughs> like that. You can always wake up in the morning and go, oh, I haven't really paid attention to anything for seven days. Um, oh, I know what I'll do. Uh, what have FIFA been up to? And there, bang, it's 1,500 words straight away. It, the art of journalism, ladies just, and gentlemen. You know, that's not how it's done, by the way. Girls, just, just in case there's any students of journalism uh, uh, listening, it's not how it's done. But not the, anymore, anyway. But coming back to those opening three matches, the first in uh, Uruguay, followed by Argentina hosting a game in Buenos Aires, and the third in Paraguay for a tournament that is meant to be played in Spain, Portugal, Morocco. But that's I not, mean I mean it's but it's ridiculous. all it is if I'm if I'm being cynical um and as you know uh I never am but um if I'm being cynical that's sort of just a way of getting three continents out of the way to so that it's Saudi Arabia's in um in 2034. That, so that, you that, think that's that, just a nod to them? Uh, mate, that, Leave that us gets alone. Africa out the way. Oh, you've had a bit of a World Cup. That gets Europe out the way. You've had a bit of a World Cup. Gets South America out the way. You've had a bit of a World Cup. Leaves one major confederate. You know, uh, the Americas have got uh, the uh, World Cup in 2026. That leaves one um, giant confederation that hasn't had a World Cup. Oh, it's Asia. It said it would surprise, be. They've surprise. actually gone on record to say it would be Asia or Oceania. Yeah, exactly. And it's not going to be Oceania because uh, Oceania got one vote when it went to Qatar, so it ain't going to be Oceania. I'll tell you that now. Mm. So it's going to be Saudi Arabia. So one, there's that part of it which is utterly despicable, um, and then there's the second part of it, which is. If your team has got to play in South in South America, your European team, or your that if you're a fan, that's not the tank out straight away going to that first match. Yeah, you know that's that's your that's your budget. That's that's your budget gone getting to South America and back. You know, for the rest of the tournament where you'd hope to follow your team through It's Spain our budget gone as well, sending you over there and then coming back. <laughs> you know, um, that's you know that that not. I'm not going to pay for myself. Um, <laughs> no, but quite right. So, no, but it is yeah, a, exactly. it's a genuine you know, I'm point. I'm not on a yup scheme. It's what I actually do for a living. <laughs> no, um, but it's a genuine point. I wasn't making a joke. It's a genuine point about the logistics of these tournaments, and we've yeah. seen it recently. The difficulties, and we're going to see it again in the tournaments coming in the coming. But no up. one's feeling sorry for News UK and, and, and no. our, our budget. What, I'm, I'm what about Planet about, Earth? I'm talking about what about Planet Earth? I mean, indeed. they said they, like the the there was a ruling in in June, I think it was, by a, a Swiss regulator that their claim that the Qatar World Cup was carbon neutral. Yeah, was completely oh. false and it was misleading. So, you know, to go from that, <laughs> which was a farce, to now actually and to to having it, you know, they have they they, they 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 talk the right talk. They say they're committed to, you know, to the climate crisis and and doing all they doing their bit, and then they spread the spread the next World Cup that they're you know that they're mm. announcing across. Uh, several continents well, got, they, you, they are committed to the climate crisis though they're committed to causing it yeah yeah we've got climate change in this show as well I mean it really has got everything Tom or not mm-hmm. you were talking before about Saudi Arabia uh, and this tournament and your kind of slight scepticism cynicism as well similar to mine what what do you make of this you know you're a journalist who's worked uh, in Europe in Spain and you know covered t- football in Portugal and things is is this a bit of a kick in the teeth for those for those nations in terms of wanting to host a tournament and do it properly I mean it sounds to me like two or three really good world cups that have sort of been 
condensed together into one bad one. I mean, you know, a Spain, yeah. Portugal, Morocco World Cup, blimey, that would be fantastic. I mean, even a Morocco on its own would be brilliant. An Argentina World Cup, superb. You know, a Uruguay, Argentina, Paraguay, that sounds great. But all of them together, spread across, you know, three continents, I mean, it's just, it's madness to me, you know. And, and you know, we're trying to kind of say there should be less flights, less gains for players, less travelling, less, uh, less, less cost for fans and all of these things. Of course, it's it's a it's a way to to get Saudi on on board for 2034, and I, I got, you know also you, you see that you know Australia now have sort of 25 days to kind of patch up their kind of bid you know the, before the deadline kind of amounts. And of course, Saudi were right there, have already launched it, confirmed you know ready to go, and well, and all the other ones have to kind of now find a find two or three weeks to kind of get over the line. So. Um, Let's see. I, I, I presume Saudis will be will be right there for 2034. Martin, final word for you on this: Is it is it only going to keep going like this from FIFA in terms of World Cup? Oh, Cups? from FIFA, yeah. terrible bunch of people. They really are. Um, he is um, he's an appalling um, a force uh, in football um, in Fantino. Um, he really is an, an, an appalling uh, figure um, to, to have at the, at the head of football because. It, it, but it's one of those things, and 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 the Qatar World Cup was the absolute um, epitome of this. It didn't matter what anyone said. It didn't matter what anyone did. It didn't matter what anyone proved. All of the things that everyone said about the Qatar World Cup were all proven to be true about the, the, the about the levels of uh, duplicity that got the tournament there about the the way that the uh, the workers were, were treated and it, all of this it was all proven to be true it didn't make an iota of difference because this is the way that it was heading and then uh, infantino talks as if none of that really happened and the, 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 and he has these uh what were they called alternate alternate facts and 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 that's what fifa deal with now they de- you know so they will say how much they care about player welfare and then they will do and then they will expand every single tournament they've got so there's more matches and and everyone's more exhausted they will say that they're committed to environmental issues and then they send the world cup across uh three continents so it, it's it's alternate facts. He sounds it, like the head of like a, a sovereign state or something. He says, yeah. "In a divided world, FIFA is uniting." Yeah, well, he like, genuinely thinks everyone. he. Like, I think just the the power has gone to this man's head so much that he thinks that FIFA is is going to be some force for global good that no one else on, on planet Earth is, despite all of the things Martin has just said. Hopefully, listeners, you think the delusions and alternative facts stick with FIFA and not with the game podcast. We're going to have to leave it there. We said we're going to try and cram it into an hour. We've failed miserably. Uh, Martin Samuel, Tom Allnut, Gregor Robson and Martin Hardy, thank you very much for joining me. If you enjoyed the show, make sure you're subscribed. We'll be back on Monday to discuss the weekend's action with plenty more bad timekeeping as well. Thanks for listening. listening to me daisy apple's iphone disassembly robot is dismantling an iphone into lots of recyclable parts that's how apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods thanks daisy there's more to iphone 